Well, good morning. Uh, a blessing indeed. Thank you, Sierra. Um, impressive as well. Uh, holding a sleeping baby as a prop, and she's still asleep. Wow. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to welcome you here uh, to Big Woods this morning. Um, I, I do feel it necessary even just to acknowledge at the outset uh, even just the reason that I'm in the pulpit this morning. Uh, as many of you are aware, and Pastor uh, Robbie has already prayed, um, Pastor Tim's mother, Ruth Joan Boger, uh, passed away uh, in the Lord in the morning hours of April the 24th. Uh, and so I'm here this morning uh, because Pastor Tim is ministering to his family uh, and we will take time to pray for him, uh, pray alongside of their family as they are mourning uh, in this season. Um, but I'm reminded of, of that, uh, a quote from uh, Spurgeon's grandfather, uh, who was waiting for his grandson to come and, and preach, and he was late to the service, uh, but when Charles finally entered the back of the, the, the church, his grandfather stopped preaching and said his grandson was going to come. Uh, but what he said was, um, many men can preach the gospel better than I, but no man can preach a better gospel. Uh, so even in the absence of our uh, shepherd this morning, Pastor Tim, uh, we will hear the same gospel. Uh, and I am eager to bring it to you this morning from Genesis chapter 4. Uh, but we will take some time to pray uh, before we do that. So let's join together in prayer. Father, we are indeed grateful that we can gather here this morning in the presence of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, your word says that if one rejoices, we are to rejoice with them, but also if one is mourning, we are to mourn with them as well. And so God, we, we do indeed mourn and grieve with, with Pastor Tim and, and his family. We think of, of Ruth's husband, Bob, uh, all of their children, all of their grandchildren, and all of their great-grandchildren who surely will miss her dearly and yet have great hope and great confidence that she is even now in the presence of her Savior. So we pray that you would help them to grieve, but not without hope, and that you would be near to them in this time, uh, and even allow for us in the days and weeks to come to, to be the conduit of your presence to a grieving brother. And we're thankful, God, that you have designed the body the body of Christ, uh, to be just that, to, to be able to bear one another's burdens. And so God, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that you would, you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. We ask, God, that you would empower us by your spirit, because apart from uh, his ministry, his work here this morning, uh, these are just empty words. 
We're so thankful, God, that we have the author of this word indwelling us to open our eyes to know what it is that you require of us. So be with us this morning. Be glorified in our time. And we pray that you would do this uh, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can follow along with me. Genesis chapter 4. It will be on the screens, but uh, you may also have the word open in front of you. Uh, We'll read verses 17 through 26, and then uh, consider a few things from it this morning. So Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 17, says this. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may wonder why we're considering this passage this morning. Who are all of these people? Why are their names so funny? And what are we to learn from them? Well, if you're asking that question, you're asking a great question. Uh, It's what I want for us to consider this morning uh, and, and to help us with that, I, I want to mention um, a few things, and you'll see the note sheet in front of you and whatnot. But to start, uh, you may have heard Pastor Tim uh, quote some, a guy named Augustine. Uh, he was a 4th century African pastor, and, and, and this guy, Augustine, wrote one of the most influential books, uh, possibly in the history of the church, uh, and it's called The City of God. And in the city of God, he argues that all of life can be represented by two cities. The city of God and the city of man. And and these two cities are in constant conflict with each other. So the city of God is the heavenly city. It's the eternal kingdom of God, while the city of man is the earthly city ruled by humans who pursue their own selfish interests. This book is influential 
uh, because of its truthfulness, and, and so it has been picked up by many authors since the time of the 4th century uh, to make a similar point. Uh, one of the more contemporary books that picks up on this theme of the tension that exists between the city of God and the city of man uh, was written by a man named John Bunyan uh, in the 17th century. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, I, would, I would highly recommend The Pilgrim's Progress if you've not read it. Uh, and there are even editions that have updated language so that you don't have to read 17th century English. Uh, but if you're like, no, I don't want to do that either, well, there's two adaptations for children that are also really good. Uh, we've been reading them as a family. Uh, Little Pilgrim's Progress, great, and Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. But all of that to say, uh, John Bunyan picks up on this theme of the city of God and the city of man, and in one scene in particular, he illustrates this very well. Christian, who is the, the main character in volume one, is walking with his companion faithful along the narrow way. And they approach a city called Vanity Fair. Outside of this city, there's, there's a man named Evangelist who warns them of all of the, the troubles that they are going to face as they enter Vanity Fair. Because Vanity Fair was built by Beelzebub on both sides of the straight and narrow path so as to distract pilgrims in hopes that they would turn away from their journey to the city of God, the celestial city, and choose instead to reside in Vanity Fair, the city of man, instead. So Christian and faithful are, are moving through Vanity Fair and facing temptations. They, they, the people of this city want them to stop and serve Beelzebub. They're falsely accused of starting a riot when they refuse to buy the lies of the world in the marketplace of Vanity Fair. And yet Christian and faithful stay on this narrow way that leads right through Vanity Fair. And they refuse to bow the knee to the prince of the city, Beelzebub. And this presents them with conflict. Because they know they belong to another city. They serve another ruler. And they have a higher set of rules to abide by. So ultimately, they're thrown into prison to await their sentencing from Judge Hategood. He's not, not a good guy, in case you were wondering. And while in prison, Christian and faithful are encouraging one another with the promises of God, keeping their eyes set on the celestial city. And, and so I think Christian and faithful are meant to be to us an example of how any faithful Christian is meant to live in this world. Instead of being wooed by the things of this earth, instead, we are to focus on the promises of God. So you see, Bunyan's point in this chapter is, is to show us the conflict that exists between the city of God and the city of man. Christian and faithful represent those who are following the true king as citizens of the city of God, all the while living and traveling through the city of man. 
faithful is an example for us of how we should respond to the lies of the world as they're in the marketplace when when people are, are persuading them don't you want to buy these trinkets don't you want the things that we have for sale in Vanity Fair and his response is we buy only truth and I think what this shows is what we see on display in our passage this morning. There are two family lines that represent two ways to live. One represents living as a citizen of the city of man according to its rules, and the other represents the the citizen of the city of God who is living according to its rules. So as is my custom, I like to give you the main point of the passage as I understand it. Uh, You'll see it on your note sheet in front of you. I think the main point for our passage this morning is this. The Bible gives us two options for how to live our lives. One involves being rebellious and seeking to elevate ourselves above others, while the other involves engaging in hopeful worship. So the one way of life is is rebellion, seeking to elevate yourself, and the other is a life marked by hopeful worship. These two ways to live are put on display in two families in our passage this morning. We see rebellious self-exaltation, which is indicative of one living in the city of man. We also see hopeful worship which is indicative of one living in the city of God. And, and these, these two ways of life are seen in technicolor in our narrative this morning. One way of life is filled with pride, the other hope. One way of life is filled with rebellion, the other trust. And so these two ways of life are connected to what God said to the serpent back in Chapter 3, what he said to Eve and what he said to Adam in the fall. Those following after the serpent will, like the serpent, be filled with pride. Those following after Eve and Adam and the example that they set, like Adam and Eve, will live by faith. And so even just as a reminder of, of what we saw last week, is that Cain was following after the serpent. He did not rule over sin, and instead, sin ruled over him, and he killed his brother Abel. What we see in that and in this morning's passage is the enmity on display that that God said was going to exist between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. Cain chose to follow in the pride-filled ways of Satan, and it did not go well for him. And in these verses, we see the outcome of the way of Cain on a generational scale. We're introduced to seven generations of Cain in this passage. And we see the depravity of the way of Cain on full display. But we also see the opposite depicted in in Adam's family line through Seth. Eve expresses faith-filled hope as we're introduced to worship. 
So then the encouragement that I would like us to take from this text, what I think we can, we can uh, even just allow for, for this to be something that we take from today as a way that we view what's going on in the world would be this. It's easy to see the devastating effects of sin around you. But if you look closely, you will see God at work. And, and I think that's what we see this morning, that there are devastating effects of sin, and yet God is still at work. So let's look at these verses more closely to see what God has for us from this passage. Everyone look at verse 17. It says this, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Our first point from this section is this, rebellion and pride on display in the city of man. So as we go through this section, feel, feel free to write in the blank space, the blank areas of your note sheet, things that, that come to mind, maybe words that come to mind that describe citizens of the city of man. I'll take the easy ones for you. Could be something like pride. Could be something like self-centeredness. And I think these will help you know what to avoid as a citizen of the city of God. So in, in verse 17, we find what one commentator calls a modest expression. What is taking place is obedience to the command to be fruitful and multiply. The line of Cain continues. And as we saw last week, with the line of Cain, the way of Cain continues as well. Pastor Tim took us to Jude. He used Cain as an example of someone who is ungodly. If you read the final verses of the, the book of Jude, you will be struck, I think, with how many times Jude uses the word ungodly. It's like a drumbeat for the passage. And, and that is meant to describe who Cain is. And, and in our passage this morning, Cain continues in his ungodliness. First... In an act of rebellion, Cain builds a city. God told him that he would be a fugitive and a wanderer. But instead, Cain settles and builds. And his rebellion continues. But then he, he pridefully names the city after his son. As if to say, look what I have accomplished. This seems to foreshadow what will take place on the plains of Shinar when the people come together with no regard for God to build a city seen in the Tower of Babel. Cain has not learned any better about the sin that exists within his heart. And he is continuing down a path of self-exaltation. So there are two things that I want to make note of here before moving on. First, you might wonder, and rightly so, where did Cain get a wife? Now, instead of imposing our 21st century rationalistic impulses on the text, we can understand and realize that what we consider gross and inappropriate was taking place as the only option. So to say it bluntly... Yes, most likely Cain married a sister. 
Now, I say most likely because it's also possible that his wife was a cousin. There are lots of kids being born. Uh, but either way, he married someone of close relation. While this is later condemned in the Mosaic law, <clears throat> it was neither outside of God's will nor inappropriate for Cain to do so, even if we don't like it. There would have been no other way. If the entire human race is descended from one pair, and it is, the historical Adam and Eve, this is how it would have taken place. And we don't need to blush at it. You may ask along with that, who was Cain afraid of when God cursed him? I think he had in mind his brothers and sisters, yet to be born, who would have been aware of what took place. Not, not some group of random strangers who lived in some other part of the world. You see, because many, many people try to, try to explain this away by saying that, that there are other people that God created that we don't know about. Or, or maybe explain it away by, by introducing some sort of evolutionary theories into this text. And I don't, I don't find those convincing. Adam and Eve, as the text says were having other sons and daughters. And as we will see next week, they were living for over 900 years. So I don't think it's a stretch to assume that Cain was worried about members of his own family seeking vengeance. That said, I also don't think that's the question Moses intends for us to ask from this passage. So I don't feel compelled to say any more about it. Moses instead is showing us the effects of following the way of Cain. See, following the way of Cain, as Pastor Tim showed us last week with the help of Jude, leads to eternal destruction. And so this passage serves as a warning to any who would follow after the serpent and his lies. The second thing I want to consider from this verse is, is something that we call common grace. I think Moses is showing us the goodness of God even in sinful humanity. Think of it. The, the world's first city here in this text. The world's first artists, metallurgists, and, and more come from the line of Cain even though he was evil. And so we, we consider, as we consider the, the next few verses... We come to see that God's goodness comes to the world even through sinners like Cain. That is common grace. Or we would, we would say it another way as to say the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. This means that, that all of these blessings come from, from God for us, his creation, to enjoy even through the hands of sinners which is really good news for us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet God can and does still use us for his glory in the world. But the narrative continues, showing how the descendant of, descendants of Cain follow after the way of Cain in their rebellious self-exaltation. So let's look at verses 18 to 22. To Enoch was born Irad, 
and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. In these verses, we meet seven generations of Cain. And then we zoom in on one of his descendants who is living in the city of man following its rules named Lamech. And Lamech is introduced to us to show just how far down the way of Cain takes you. But before that, we meet Jabal, who, along with his descendants, cared for livestock. Abel would have been a shepherd. He, he was a keeper of sheep. But Jabal would have included cattle, donkeys, camels, things like that. Jubal, along with his descendants, were musical artists. And Tubal-Cain forged those instruments. And through the sinful line of Cain, God gave gifts to the world that include animals for work and music for enjoyment. And so in this, culture advances and there are technological steps forward. But then Moses zooms in on Lamech, who is pictured as the pinnacle of evil. We see his evil on display in two ways. First, he's the first polygamist. Second, he is filled with rebellion and self-exaltation. So he's the first polygamist. That means he took two wives, as the passage said. Um, interestingly, the names of his wives mean something like pretty face and sweet voice. Uh, one pastor was preaching this, and he said, uh, Men, we all marry that, but in one woman. And so in doing so, he clearly violates God's revealed order in Genesis chapter 2, specifically verse 24. And in fact, we see throughout the Old Testament that polygamy almost always Think of Abraham, who knew Hagar, trying to produce an heir, and the conflict that, that that causes in his family with Hagar and Sarai. Or even consider Jacob, and the conflict between his two wives, Leah and Rachel, and their servants. David's household fell because of his sin with Bathsheba. Solomon fell. Twenty one about polygamy seems to assume that if a man takes two wives or more, one will be loved and, and one will be unloved. And so, in other words, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Lamech is living in the city of man following after the way of Cain and rebelling against God. 
And, and we see that in his poem in verses 23 and 24. Consider verses 23 and 24 with me. It says, Lamech said to his wives, You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now that's, that is presented in, in the Hebrew as, as a poem. And, and Contrast that poem with, with Adam's poem in chapter 2 where, where upon seeing Eve, he exclaims, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, Adam recognizes Lamech, on the other hand, says to his wives, listen up. And I think what we see here is the playing out of a husband domineering over his wife, in this case, wives, that is discussed in Genesis. introduced to us as a contrast of Adam. Adam is seeing the helper fit for him. Lamech is ruling over his wives with no regard. He's domineering in an unloving, careless way that shows his self-exaltation. But he goes on. He has killed a man for wounding him. And, and what we are supposed to read from this is that he overreacted in vengeance. You see, the, the punishment did not fit the crime. Now, surely justice would demand some level of reparations between, between the man and Lamech, but, but Lamech took it into his own hands. And he did not trust God to handle it, as we see later, God will say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Kevin DeYoung of, of this exchange says this, Lamech is worse than his great, 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 great grandfather Cain. Cain was to be avenged seven times. Now, he says, 77-fold, seven being the number of completion. It's like, saying, it's like somebody saying a million bajillion times. It's, it's a, a full number of completion. And, and in some twisted way, Lamech sees what was a curse against Cain as protection from God. Now, now how self-centered do you have to be to see a curse as protection and, and he thinks he is untouchable because the curse of God rests on him. Now this is pure evil. And Cain takes 
what God hates. Lamech takes what God hates and, and, and thinks that it's a good thing. Notice he says, I have killed a man for wounding me. Sometimes we get bent out of shape with the Old Testament adage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We think, oh, that's, that's so barbaric. But actually, it, it, it wasn't barbaric. It was the law of justice. And it, and it was a way of restraining vengeance. Because an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth means that, that you can't cut off someone's head for hurting your tooth. You can't destroy someone's whole tribe because they hurt your eye. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is, is meant to restrain violence, but here, Lamech kills a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. But, but not only that, for the first time in recorded history, you see someone who actually celebrates his sin. In chapter 3, Adam and Eve are caught in sin, and they feel shame for it. And they begin to blame shift and make, make excuses, and, and they hide. Cain gets worse. He flat out lies about it and says, I don't know where Abel is. But, but there's still this, this sense from Cain that, that he knows that he shouldn't have killed his brother, and, and that's why he's lying about it. But now, for the first time, as the city of man gets worse and worse, and corruption increases and grows, Lamech celebrates it. Without apology, he says, I'm a polygamist, and I killed a man, and I will be avenged a million billion times. And so surely it's not insignificant that the fallen culture of man, the city of man, is, is here depicted by the two great evils in Lamech. Violence and the disintegration of the family. We see in Lamech a disdain for marriage and a disdain for life. Perhaps because those are the two most fundamental civilizational building blocks. You cannot have a healthy civilization unless innocent life is protected and marriage is honored. And we see the abdication of both in Lamech. One commentator puts it this way. He says, The narrative thus describes the first affluent society, self-indulgent and self-gratifying, building cities, developing civilization, but doing so in defiance of God and his laws. And so I think Moses intends for us to see a profound difference between the line of Cain, the citizens of the city of man, and the line of Seth, the citizens of the city of God. And so we go back to the question I asked at the, at the beginning. You may wonder why this genealogy is here. You may ask, why is this important? Why does this matter? I think what Moses is doing is, is he's building anticipation. So, so we know, as, as readers of this story, of this, of this account, we know that there is an offspring coming 
that will bruise the head of the serpent. And, and we're supposed to ask as we read this, where is he? And the line of Cain is here to show that, that the offspring will not come from his line. It's too wicked. It's too prideful. It's too rebellious to produce one who would crush the one they are following. So, so no, we are meant to see that we are waiting for another offspring. Which is what Eve says in verse 25. Let's look at verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she, she said, God has, has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. So our second point from this passage is this. We see hope and worship on display in the city of God. You'll notice the repeated modest phrase that we saw in verse 17 marking another section in this text but this time Adam knew his his wife resulting in the birth of Seth but but look at what Eve says she says God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him from this I think we learn a few things uh, it seems to me that Eve was expecting the offspring to come quickly and, and she thought, oh, well, it's going to be Abel. But then Abel was murdered. And two things are made clear from that. Firstly, it's not going to be Abel who crushes the head of the serpent. But secondly, it's not going to be Cain either. He's too wicked. And so with the birth of Seth, hope is reinvigorated. And, and her wording is hopeful. She says, God has appointed me. And, and it shows that she knows that it is God who opens the womb. And she names him Seth, which in Hebrew sounds like the word for appointed. And, and by all of this, it shows the hope she has in the head-crushing offspring yet to come. And, and we know, and, and we will see as as Genesis and the rest of the Bible unfolds, that Seth was not the one who ultimately would crush the head of the serpent. But, but Eve's hopeful expectation what, was that one was coming. And guess what? He has come. The Lord Jesus came to this earth as the long-awaited, head-crushing offspring of the woman and defeated Satan. Eve was right. There's another offspring, and praise God, he has arrived. Continuing then to verse 26, it says, To Seth also was born a son. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Seth then also has a son, and the hope-filled line continues. But, but what is interesting about this verse is the final phrase. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So, so chapter 4, verse 26, is not telling us that they understood everything about the divine name. That's going to be revealed much more clearly as we come to the Exodus. Nor is it saying that, that it's the first time 
anyone ever heard the divine name? Anyone ever heard of God or anything like that? What I think it's saying is that for the first time we have the formal worship of Yahweh on earth. And, and there's another, another contrast that we see in the two families. Seth's line, in other words, is remembered for one thing. Worship. And then you have all of the achievements of the line of Cain. Their agriculture, their arts, their sciences, their civilization, cultural artifacts. They're remembered for all of that. But Seth's line is noted for one thing, and it's the one thing that matters. Worship. And we may read this and, 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 and look at it and say, it would seem that, that the serpent is winning. Seems like the, the first round went to the serpent, but, but not so fast. The serpent may seem to be winning, but Eve has had another child. His name is Seth. And, and then he has his own son. And at that time, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Cain and his family are pioneers in cities and the arts and science and industry. Seth and his family will be pioneers in worship. One will have a passion for the name of man, while the other will have a passion for the name of the Lord. So what are we supposed to learn from this passage? I think primarily it's this. That citizens of the city of God live for now in the city of man. Citizens of the city of God live for now in the city of man. And, and as we do, we need to live according to the rules of the city of God, not, not the city of man. That means that, that we are not to be known for the pride and self-exaltation seen in Lamech but rather the hopeful worship seen in Seth. One of, one of the differences we see between the line of Cain and the line of Seth is, is what their focus is. God has blessed us with many good things to, to enjoy in this world, but, but none of those things should be our focus. For instance, this passage introduces us to the arts, it introduces us to metalwork. It introduces us to, to raising animals. These are, these are things for our enjoyment and for our benefit. But they cannot be our Savior. We cannot look to our jobs or our hobbies as the purpose for our lives. And I think we can expand it out from there as well. Our relationship whether it's a spouse or a close friend, our, our children, our toys for enjoyment, our personality, or anything we have or have been given by God cannot be ultimate in our lives. Only the giver of those good gifts can be ultimate. Or to say it another way, God, who has given us all these good things, is the only one who deserves our worship. Cain was focused on, on what he could get here and now. Adam, Eve, or Seth were focused on what God promised is yet to come. 
And so though we live in the city of man, our eyes should be fixed on the city of God and the glorious future that he has prepared for us. I opened up by telling you about uh, Christian and faithful and their journey to the celestial city. I didn't finish the story, but I think it helps kind of bring all of this together. I mentioned that Christian and faithful are, are put on trial, but they are ultimately sentenced to death. Faithful is executed, but Christian escapes because someone in Vanity Fair sees their commitment to live for God no matter the cost and realizes that he needs to flee from the city of man to the city of God. You see, Christian and faithful had fixed their eyes on the celestial city. Their focus was on the city of God. And they knew that no matter what they faced, living for the promise of what is to come is better than anything this world has to offer. They knew the promise of God held true, even in the face of the difficulty of the city of man. So I don't, I don't know what you're facing this morning. I don't know your hardship. I don't know the things of this world that you are drawn to. I don't know if you are in love with the ways of the city of man and, and living in pride and self-exaltation. But I do know this. There is a better city yet to come because there was another offspring who came to make a way for us to get there. The Lord Jesus is the another offspring that Eve was waiting for. And we are no longer waiting. Put your faith in the one who has come. His promise is secure. And if you've never put your trust in Christ, I or, or someone sitting around you would love to talk more with you about how to do that. If you have done that, Keep doing it every day. Look to Jesus and know that, that though you reside in the city of man, you belong to another city, a better city yet to come. And may we encourage one another to live as citizens of that better, better city, being faithful to our King as we temporarily live here. So may we live lives marked by hopeful worship that shows we are resting in the promises of God. Let's pray to that end. Father, would you do that among us? Would you allow for us to take our eyes off the things of this earth and, and God cause them even to grow strangely dim as we are just more and more aware of your glory and your greatness. Cause us to live for you and for you alone. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.